Today we begin a four-week series tracing the footsteps of Christ as he walks toward Jerusalem for the very last time. We're calling it, as you see on your program, the walk that changed the world. Uh, We begin that walk this morning in the Gospel of Mark, and we'll be following it through the Gospel of Mark, but we begin in Mark 10. Next week, we'll pause in Jericho, uh, just outside, and then the following week is the triumphal entry into the city gates, the temple, the cross, the tomb, and then Easter Sunday, uh, we will join the disciples as they walk. In fact, some of them run to the empty tomb in Mark 16. And Easter Sunday at Fellowship Franklin, we will have three services. And I want to encourage you, remind you, we're going to talk about this over the next few weeks, that we are actually, for the first time, we have uh, tickets to Easter. Now, you do know, you don't have to have a ticket to get in, okay? But why would we do this? We've done this for years at Fellowship Brentwood. And can I put it in one word? logistics. It's all about logistics. And uh, we'll do three services here. And this allows us to self-regulate the services. So we go pick a ticket, however many tickets you need. You got three people in your family, you got friends coming in town, you need five, grab five for whatever service you want. And here's the good news, you know, the, the first service, of course, have, has taken tickets. Y'all are getting, you know, the stacks are out there. Everyone that's on spring break is going to not be, you know, not going to get a ticket they want. But go out there and take however many you need for that service. And in about two weeks, my guess is that the 930 service will all be gone. And you know what that means? That means you get to take either the earlier or the later service. And that way, when you come on Easter uh, everyone has a seat. Does that make sense? It, and it, it, it works really well. You do not have to hand the ticket off, you know, when you come in. If you've forgotten or whatever, just, just come. But that really, really helps us. Now, all the messages that lead up to Easter are preparatory. That is, they're getting us ready for that most important event in the history of the world. Quite frankly, nothing gets us ready for the light you know, you saw the, the, um, the, the I was going to point back here to the grave, the, the empty tomb, but the light of Easter, nothing gets us ready for the light of Easter like the darkness of Good Friday. And so we will meet here at 6 p.m. on Good Friday, again, to prepare ourselves for that day of resurrection. 6 p.m., I hope you're here. Child care is provided, birth through first grade, so the younger kids will be out. Just need to register your children online. If you have your Bibles, open them to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Mark, chapter 10. Peter Berry wanted to leave a mark. Uh, he needed to know that his life counted, that it mattered. So he became one of Chicago's best-known, if not most famous, bombers or taggers, as they are called, a graffiti artist. Uh, he, was, uh, he went by the name of Kaiser, which I think everyone knows means king. Um, taggers, they placed themselves in the most 
precarious of situations. Like climbing 200 foot towers or hanging precariously off a, of, of a bridge or being in a tunnel with a train that's one inch, two inches behind them speeding by all in order that they can put their mark. I can put my name somewhere. Uh, in the early hours of August 16th, 2005, Peter Berry was killed by the northbound Chicago Red Line train. It was, an, it was ruled an accident. He had been on that line countless times. It was two days prior to this young man's 22nd birthday. Another tagger named Worm, they don't use their real name because it's illegal what they do, he said this, quote, Peter wasn't just any bomber, he was one of the greatest. He climbed to the highest spots, he had guts, his name was known, his name will still be known, end quote. I want to suggest to us that these taggers are on to something. That you and I, created in the image of God, were made to know that our life matters. I'm telling you, we were made to live this, this life, you know, in time, in such a way that our life counts for something beyond time, beyond the grave. I, I think that, that, that's what they're on to, you see. And in a way that we don't see coming, Jesus actually affirms this in what could be one of the most difficult, hard conversations that he ever had with his disciples. Because unfortunately, like these taggers, like the disciples, like us, we go about making that mark in all the wrong ways. According to Christ, there's only one way to live a life that truly matters in this life and the life to come. And that's what we'll see in our text. The story begins in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. We're going to go all the way to verse 45, but I'm going to take it a section at a time. Uh, there are three statements I'm going to give us that I think the text is flashing, flashing, flashing in front of our eyes. I'll give each statement as we cover that section. So let's take the first section of our text today, verses 32 to 34 of Mark chapter 10. Follow along in your Bibles. They, this is Jesus and the disciples, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem geographically. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him 
and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. In these verses, I think Jesus is saying, the text is screaming, Jesus is determined to die. Jesus is determined to die. Jesus has got like radar lock. It's like he's got radar lock on Jerusalem. Luke 9:51 tells it like this. It says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he, Jesus, was determined to go to Jerusalem. Was determined, Greek word literally means he set his face. To go to Jerusalem, Isaiah 57, the, the servant song, this is the, the, the coming suffering servant, this is Messiah, prophetically speaking. And it says in Isaiah 50, verse 7, for the Lord helps me, therefore I am not disgraced, therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. As Jesus makes the turn, you guys, for Jerusalem, and begins that final journey to die. I want you to know, this is getting the context itself. He's not conflicted. He's not thinking, I'm going to be so embarrassed. It's going to be so disgraceful to die and bleed in front of people. No, he is determined, unflinching. And note the text. In a way that makes those who are traveling with him, it says two things. He's set in such a way that it makes them what? Amazed and it makes them fearful as he heads to Jerusalem. You know this, if your spouse, friend, whatever, you ever been with someone and they get that look? You know, I don't see your spouse and you're kind of going, oh my gosh, I crossed the line. She's got that look. <laughs> you're backing up, right? See, this is Jesus. He's got that look and he even creates this fear and amazement in those who follow. He pulls them aside, of course, and he speaks these hard truths that await him, but it's not the first time he has spoken of these things. We're not in the gospel of Mark right now, though we will be now for the next four weeks, but contextually, let me say this. Back in chapter 8, verse 31, he told him what was going to happen. That was the first time, he said, and he literally, you know, said, I'm going to go here, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise in three days. And then in chapter 9, verse 31, he adds a little bit of information and he adds the fact that in, I'm going to go, they're going to, you know, they're going to kill me. I'm going to be betrayed. And he adds that in that context. And then right here in 1033, he gives the most detail. The verbs are very striking. And he adds, he'll be mocked, spit upon, scourged, and killed. Now I'm going to read one statement again. But I'm going to put the emphasis on one of the smallest words in the text. And maybe it's the most, could be the over, most overlooked, maybe. But I want us to, to feel it. When he turns to say this, note what he says in verse 33. Behold, we are going to Jerusalem. Now, I want to ask you, put yourself in there. Literally, get yourself there. You've been walking with him. He's been saying this. Now, it's the third time. He gives even more detail. And he says, we're going. I'm, not, I'm literally asking you, what, 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 what do you think could have been going through their mind? What kind of thoughts might they have been having? What, what would you, if you're sitting there, what would go through your mind? Some things. It's not right or wrong. So what are some things that would go through your mind? Don't go. Don't go. Why don't go? Don't go. 
what, what else? What, you, what could have been going through their mind? We're going to stop them. I don't want to go with... Now, track with this. Now, he says they're going to do this to me. But you tell me, would it cross their mind? Is that going to happen to... Who? Me? <laughs> of course. No doubt it crossed their minds. I think there's a tension. I, I, I think Jesus intends that attention for them. I mean, they're, they're tight. He's, he's our guy. He's our leader. They're going to do that to you, then maybe. And I do think Jesus most certainly felt intended for them to feel that. Jesus is determined to die. That's the first statement from the text. How about the disciples? Well, follow along as I read verses 35 to 41. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able and Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. It seems to me as resolutely as Jesus is determined to die. Second statement, the disciples are determined to live. <laughs> they are determined to live. I think this has to be one of the most heartbreaking exchanges that ever occurs between Jesus and his disciples. Honestly, if it weren't in the text, wouldn't, you'd have trouble believing that this is how they would respond to Jesus as he pours out his soul. It would be like I come home and I say, honey, I, I just went for my physical and they, they found something in my blood and I'm going to be dead in a week. And Lisa says, would you buy that new house before you go? <laughs> we kind of giggle a little, like, really? What do you think? Do you think Jesus was immune in his humanity from the feeling of being totally missed? Absolutely not seen? No. What amazes me in the text is that Jesus is not offended nor put off by their lack of awareness and sensitivity and understanding. James, James and John not only missed the opportunity to, to meet Christ in his humanity, you guys. <laughs> it's kind of like they, they, they step on his heart as it lays there. What do they say? Can you do something for us? And what's Jesus' response? 
what do you want me to do for you? Wow. Jesus' response, what can I do for you? Have you ever wondered if Jesus grows weary of your junk? Have you, ever just, have you ever just thought, I just can't bring that to him again? I think it's for the umpteenth gazillionth time. I, I don't, I don't want to bring that. Have you ever just thought that, you see? I'm going to tell you, if this little vignette tells us anything, it tells us that in the midst of your sin, in the aftermath of your sin, whenever we choose anything other than Christ, when we go other places to satisfy that longing in our heart, that loss, whenever we move away from him, his heart is always, what can I do for you? It's always, what do you need me to do for you? First Peter 5, 7 says, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. I want you to know wherever you are today, wherever you're sitting in this room and you failed, you blew it again, messed up. Jesus's heart is always what can I do for you? It is never, I can't believe you did it again. Such is the love of the son. Back to the story. James and John asked to be the chief of staff and the secretary of state in the coming kingdom. Two positions Jesus says they're not his to give. The cup and the baptism refer primarily to the same thing. It would be the experience of the cross and all that it brings. The cup in the Old Testament is often the, the cup of wrath, that, that all, the, all the wrath of God that's going to be poured out. You see, that it must be poured out and satisfied. The, the, the baptism here has nothing to do with water, everything to do with bapto, what it means, that it's, it's to be immersed. And Jesus, you see, is getting ready to be immersed under the weight of the full wrath of God against sin. That's what he's speaking of here. Now, I don't think it's a stretch to see their request as the desire to matter. That in this request, what's underneath it, what, what, what's underneath that is that longing. I just want to have a life for something bigger than me and something beyond the grave. Now, Lloyd, why would you say that? Well, because at least these two reasons. Number one, Jesus does not rebuke them for their request. Do you see that? Listen, could, could not Jesus say, I, I can't believe you asked for that. You know, don't ever ask for that again. No, Jesus does not rebuke them for the request. And secondly, in a moment, I think the text itself and the story, we see Jesus put their request in the category of seeking greatness. And I, I want to say he doesn't, he doesn't say don't seek greatness. He could have said that. But what does he say? What's he going to say? He, has, 
He goes on to say you're choosing the wrong path to greatness, doesn't he? We'll get to that in a moment. One point of application, let's pause and consider this. It seems the story is telling us at least this one thing. The reality of the cross often reveals the foolishness of the heart. I'll say it again. The reality of the cross often reveals the foolishness of the heart. The reality of the cross often identifies the idols we hold. First time Jesus spoke of the cross, you know what happened? Peter looked at him a moment later and says, there's no way you're going to do that. What's Peter saying? Jesus, the way to greatness is not to die. (laughs) Oh, the foolishness of Peter's heart. Second time he speaks of the cross, they get into a huge argument about who is greater. Third time he speaks of the cross here, uh, they think that greatness and they think greatness is about power and authority. Foolishness flowing out of the heart. It's kind of like the, you know, that, that illustration often used of you know, that we're like a, a, a tube of toothpaste and you know, w- when we get bumped or squeezed, what's in us comes out. It's not like, hey, you made me. No, I didn't make you do anything. I just bumped into you and what came out of you is, oh, that was ugly that came out. Well, you just squeeze it, it comes out. The cross, death, squeeze us. And it reveals some of the foolishness of our heart. It's one way I want you to think about this principle. When you have a hard time dying to something, take, take a good hard look to see if you're holding on to foolishness. When you, I just have a hard time letting that go, dying to that. But take, a, take a look and go, why am I, am I holding on to foolishness? I've never forgotten. This is like 17 years ago. Um, uh, I, I was getting ready uh, all week long. I was so anticipating this, uh, this dove hunt. You know? I hadn't got to go dove hunting so long and Friend's going to take me and some friends dove hunting. This is August because it's always Labor Day that it opens. And I was so excited, man, all week long. You know, all I get is a phone call. I go, oh my gosh, I've never seen so many birds out here. They're like mosquitoes out here. That's like, and, you know, and some of you are going, I can't believe you shoot those birds. But I'm just going, I, I, I like, like the dove hunt. But it was one of those like, gosh, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be so fun, right? The night before the hunt, because we were going to hunt early in the morning, the night before the hunt, Lisa had an accident. She was pouring some boiling water. This pitcher exploded, boiling water on her thighs, and it was terrible. Uh, you know, we had a, uh, a little, we just had one little one at that time, and it's darn, you know, he's a, he's a kid, and screaming, we got a baby screaming. Lisa's in tremendous pain, extremely serious and, and uh, had to get neighbors to come over, and we're, we're trying to figure out an emergency room. We get her, emer- and it turned into a very long, year-long ordeal. Um, but in the midst of the chaos, can I tell you I, I, what I was thinking? That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> I, I know that to this day, that's what I was thinking. And you know what? Just play that out in our marriage. I mean, in life. I, I just got to tell you, that happens today. I mean, let me tell you, today, there are times when it's like, Lloyd, you need to die to this yourself. God's offering you this opportunity. To and I'm just like, Gah! today, that battle rages. 
See, I don't know the circumstances that, that you might be in. All I'm saying is, when you find yourself wrestling with dying, I'm going to use some new terms, dying to your agenda, dying to yourself, when you find yourself struggling with that, you can bet there may be some foolishness in what you're holding on to and God's inviting you, quite frankly, to life. The last section absolutely makes this clear. Jesus is determined to die. The disciples are determined to live. And then Jesus speaks so clearly in this last section. Let's look at what he makes absolutely clear, beginning in verse 41. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. This is the way of the world. The people in power use that power to crush and rule and he says, verse 43, but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It seems if Jesus was determined to die and the disciples are determined to live, what Jesus makes clear in this last section would be this statement, death is the only way to live a life that matters. There's the text. Death is the only way to live a life that matters. See, when he calls himself the son of man, there's some other things in it, but at its core, what he's saying here, that Jesus is the unique representation of the human race. He's, how do we say it? He's the consummate man, the ultimate man. He's the, the, the person who best exemplifies full humanity and, and f fulfilling all that it means to, to be a human being. And he says that life, as it was meant to be fully experienced, comes, watch this, not in living, but in what? Dying. Uh, not in getting, but in giving. Not in being served, but in Turn with me in your Bibles. I want you to see one other text. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You can go past the Gospels, past Romans, 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 14, Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who died and rose again on their behalf. 
don't turn there, but Galatians 2.20, Paul writes and says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who gave himself, who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, Christ's death, he's, he's drilling into their mind, I'm, I'm going to die, and of course, we live on the other side of that death. He does it here for the third time in Mark. It's not just to secure our eternal destiny. See, it's not just he died. So now I believe it. I'm going to heaven. It's not just to secure our eternal destiny, but to secure for you and me between the moment we trust Christ and the moment we're with him, a life that matters in time, today, now, a life a life that will, what, outlive me. Can I say this? And you know, I'm, when we're never Rob, Bill, my, we're never, not going to go into prosperity gospel and, and any of that stuff. But can I say, can I use this word? A great life. But not great as in, I get it all. But in gr- gr- great as in, I give it all. And in the giving, I find life. How do I say this? Death is an amazing gift. Now, we, that, you talk about going right over somebody's head. I'm talking to those of you in Christ. You know Christ. Death is an amazing gift. Do you understand? Do you understand when you're dead... You have nothing to prove, nothing to keep, nothing to lose, nothing to gain. And some of us sit here today and long in the deepest part of I wish I had that now. You do. You do. We do. In Christ, you see. We've, we've been crucified with him. You talk about freedom. You mean I don't have to live and I don't have to prove anything? No. You mean I don't have to hold on to keep it? No. You, you mean if I don't do this, I'm not going to lose? No. You're dead. Oh my gosh, dead men are really free, you know. But free, right? Free in Christ. Does that make sense? I mean, this, this could be confusing, but... We sang earlier, I wrote it on my hand. It was my death you died. We're singing that. Do you know what that... Yes! In Christ you're dead. But what else are we in Christ? Alive. <laughs> really alive. Both now, you see, and forever. Made in God's image, redeemed by the blood of the Son, we were made for greatness. Not our own. No, no, no. See, not our own, but that His would be most fully revealed. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Lest we think that they're even, they're unaware that death is, that they think that death is a bitter end. Go back to John, Mark 10. I got one other verse I want you to see. Mark 10. Let's just grab this last little verse. Look again at verse 37. There's something that James and John had, pun intended, dead right. They were so spot on. 
Look at Mark 10, verse 37. They said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left. Here it is. In your glory. In your glory. They knew where this was. They knew where he was going. It was going to glory. What they had trouble grasping while Jesus is going to be in glory, what, what they had trouble and we have trouble grasping was the reality that between this moment and glory is suffering and death. Welcome to the Christian life. See, this is, it's suffering and death precedes glory. And men and women, that's the only path to a life that matters. It was then, it is now, and forever will be. So what? Let's just stop preparing our hearts for Easter. We notice Jesus sets his face like flint to die. The disciples won't live. And Jesus says, death is the only way to life. What are you going to do with that? What's the Spirit inviting you to trust him for? Calling you to believe and rest in even now. Would you pause a moment and consider that? Father, we are taking these weeks prior to Easter Sunday and we are seeking to prepare our hearts for that day. And our first step today was a step toward Jerusalem with Christ. And the invitation to die. Oh God, would you grant us by your spirit the faith, the courage, the wherewithal to trust you with that. It is a walk that changed the world. May the walk itself change us. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together. I've got one verse I'll send you out with as a benediction. Let me exhort you one other way. That is this. You will not make it through this day. You will not make it through this day uh, without the opportunity to die to yourself. It's coming.
and you're not able to do it. You can't do it. You can't will it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to put my... Only one has done it. It's Jesus. He lives in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus in you will do it, can do it, longs to do it. If you trust him in that moment. John writes in his gospel account, And Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. May you walk this week in Christ on the road that passes through death to glory, the road to Jerusalem. God bless.